Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore how primary sources can be used in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. We've got another great interview for our episode today, and this one actually had a seed that was planted months and months and months ago in an earlier podcast interview, and that was with Chris Barton. In an earlier talk with him, he mentioned an upcoming book, which has since come out, called Glitter Everywhere. And I was intrigued. What were we going to see? The history of glitter, the usefulness of glitter, the downfalls of glitter. In fact, it was a little bit of everything along with the science of glitter. And he joins us in this podcast episode to talk about his primary source research for this book. I think one thing that is interesting about this particular episode and this particular types of primary sources that Chris uses to research this book is that primary, it shows that primary sources can actually be items that we take and look at and go right onto our shelves and purchase today. So if he's researching glitter, any type of glitter that he's going to be encountering, that's going to be a primary source for his particular research. And before we even got a chance to talk, I got an opportunity to see so many of the types of glitter that Chris was researching as part of this book, including glitter syrup and glitter-covered cupcakes and all kinds of other goodies. I hope you enjoy this episode. with Chris Barton. Chris, you've joined us before on the Primary Source Podcast. It must not have been too bad. You are back. Thank you for joining us again. Well, I'm glad to be here. No, I, I love talking about, about research and, and sources. The, 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 the trickier thing is getting me to shut up about it. <laughs> well, that, I'm not going to shut you up. I promise that. I think the last time that you were on the podcast, you had previewed this book. And I had known a little bit about it. We had talked about it on the side. So I was so excited uh, to see that it came out. This book we're going to be talking about today is called Glitter Everywhere, Where It Came From, Where It's Found, and Where It's Going. Chris, welcome again to the Primary Source Podcast. And I'm going to let you jump right in and tell us a little bit about this book. Well, all right. Well, the, this is a case where the subtitle covers a whole lot of ground of, of what the book is about. Glitter Everywhere is the story of glitter. It's about uh, how glitter is made, historical predecessors of the modern version of glitter, some of the, the, the cultural uses and products where we find glitter, but also some of the, of the downsides of glitter. Uh, with regard to the, to the environment and also with regard to how mica, which is another form of plastic, another form of glitter is, 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 is mined, has some issues with that, but also things that people are doing to make sure we can sparkle more responsibly in the future. Sparkle more responsibly. I like that. Uh, where did you get the idea to write a book about glitter? I, I can't, I'm kind of surprised no one's written one before, but then I'm also like, where does that idea even come from? Well, I wish I could say that as the author of the Dayglow Brothers, 
about the invention of daylight fluorescent colors. And as the author of Dazzle Ship about this weird type of camouflage, I just looked around the world and thought, oh, here's something that we see all the time that could use an explanation. I should write a book about glitter. That is not what happened. Somebody else kind of had that idea on my behalf. In December 2018, the New York Times ran a, a big article about how glitter is made. And children's book editor Harold Underdown saw that article and remembered, you know, having re remembered that I wrote about the invention of Dayglow colors, and I also wrote about the invention of the Super Soaker water gun, both books for Charles Bridge, he thought, this sounds like a Chris Barton book. So he got in touch with Charles Bridge and I think basically suggested, what if Chris Barton wrote a book about, about glitter? And Charles Bridge said, you want to write a book about glitter? I said, sure, because I've been on the, on the end of things where I say, here's a story I want to write, and I get 23 rejections. So it's much more fun when the publisher comes to me and says, you want to do this? I say, sure. I was going to ask, is that a gift when a publisher comes to you and says, hey, we've got this book idea and we think you're the person to write it? Or are there some challenges because you're kind of just hitting it cold and not really sure exactly where you're going to go with it? Well, hitting a topic cold is, is kind of how I do all my nonfiction picture books. Or not in the sense that I have never thought about that topic at all, but often I don't know a whole lot about the topic that I'm writing about. When I began writing about, say, John Roy Lynch and Reconstruction in the Amazing Age of John Roy Lynch, I didn't know a whole lot about that era. That was what attracted me to that subject was because I, I knew so little. And it was the same way with, with, with Glitter. It was the same way with, with Dazzle Ships. That was one where the editor said, hey, let's do it. Here's a, a podcast I heard about this weird type of camouflage used in World War One. What do you think? Should it be a book? And of course, I know the answer is yes, it should be. So I wasn't I wasn't intimidated in in making this book by the fact that I, I didn't know anything about it and it wasn't my idea. I do think that Charles Bridge and I both, given the nature of my first two books with them about you know, the Bob and Joe Switcher who invented Dayglo and Lonnie Johnson who invented the Super Soaker, I think that we, you know, both the publisher and I, had an idea of what this book would be like, and that turned out not to be exactly what 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 the book became. Yeah, this is a very different book as far as its structure, as far as the story that you're telling, the information that you're giving um, through this, and it's got. A pretty large page count, I think, too, if I went through and, and remember correctly. It's 48 pages. I do a lot of sidebars. I tried to do, this is the first time I've done what I consider to be, the term I use for it is layered text, because there are, are multiple layers or two layers of, of text to this. And you can read the main text without having to read the sidebars, or you can read the sidebars without reading the main text. But I, I use sort of as my model for that Diana Aston's text for uh, uh, An Quiet, that series of books she's done with illustrator Sylvia Long, and also the, the Magic School Bus books, which do a great job of you know, having a text that works on many different levels. And you can read as many or as few of those levels as you want. You can read just the, um, just the dialogue bubbles and get a whole story. You can read down to every single caption on every single page and get a much more complete picture, but you don't have to read it any one of those ways. So that's what I was trying to do with this text. But also there was a whole lot to say about glitter. And I, you know, putting a lot of that into the sidebars kept me from slowing down the, the main narrative. I 
think that there is, as you just said, you're absolutely right. So much that is said here, so much background, so much history, but also so much science and, and really an interesting blending of the two. I've got to imagine, and, and I think not only from reading it and kind of having read a lot of uh, nonfiction picture books and kind of seeing where some of these things come in, but also by the fact that you agreed to be on the podcast, I'd imagine that there's some primary sources that came into play. So could you share maybe some, some primary sources that you came across in your research? Well, the primary source that had the biggest influence on this book turned out to be a primary source that wasn't available. In the model of the Deglo brothers and Woosh, what I would have done is written a kind of biographically focused book about the person who invented modern glitter, which was this, this German immigrant named Henry F. Rushman, who in the early 1940s began, been in the machine for chopping up bits of scrap plastic into, into glitter. Well, Henry F. Rushman never said much about himself. When he died in 1989, there were three local newspapers that ran obituaries about him, and none of them even contained the word glitter. His family still owns the, the glitter-making company. It's considered by many the, the world's top glitter manufacturer. His family still owns it, and they weren't interested in you know, There were no, here are pictures of, of our father's uh, glitter-making machine. Here are some fun family anecdotes. Here is who he really was when he wasn't making making glitter. I, I spent time in the, the local uh, public library in the town where his company was and still is based, going through you know, decades of, of, of newspapers. And the only time he ever really you know, was in the newspaper was you know, there was like a, a fire at the glitter factory you know, dec many, many decades ago. Uh, but usually it was when he would need the city council to uh, grant him a, a, a zoning variance. I mean, that was when that was when Henry F. Rushman was in the local news, which tells you about what a low, pro, a low profile person he was. So this could not be a biography in that sense. So, so this, what, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No. So what, what I did instead was I had to, I had to come up with a different way of, of telling this story. Yeah, so I think that's fascinating because there's sometimes that, uh, and we see this at with student research too, where students come in and they think they're going to be researching one thing, mm -hmm. and they kind of develop some questions, they start to put some feelers out there, they're looking for sources, primary and secondary, of course, and the information's just not there. There are certain things, but, but maybe not what they would expect, and what we try to teach students is that if that's the case, what does the information we have allow us to research? What are the next questions that, that we can go in a direction on and, and learn more? How did you handle that barrier of just that information not being there? Well, I did, I did two things. One was I, I recognized that I was going to have to cover a lot more than just Henry F. Rushman. So I could look more into the history of glitter. What was there before he began making glitter back in the 1940s? What was the, the presence of glitter in like American commercial life or American cultural life in the early decades of, of, the, of the 20th century? So I could go back and I could look for 
Um, I could look on Etsy. I could look on eBay for toys and other products that contained mica and things like that. You know, many, many decades before that, the modern era of glitter. I could look into, well, what was used before plastic glitter? Mica was used, but where was it used? All around the world. And so I, I you know, we very quickly we touch on many different cultural uses of glitter in, in, you know, in many, many countries. That's something I probably would not have done if I had had access to Henry F. Rushman's archives and like everything I ever would have wanted to know about him. It would have been very difficult not to, to have that be the, the story. And also, you know, paid attention to, well, the, where where does glitter go from here? What are the downsides? That freed up more room for me to, to talk about, about the issues raised by glitter and what people are doing to, to address those. So it broadened the story, but something else I, I, the, I, I did to you know, deal with that lack of a, of a, of a, of a person to focus the story on was I realized, well, there are other people who have been in the, in the, in the glitter industry. And so the person at this company doesn't want to talk the people who own today, the second, you know, leading glitter manufacturer, they don't want to talk, but who founded that second glitter manufacturer. So I found myself in the state library in, in Trenton, New Jersey, looking at, now, six decade old New Jersey state industrial directories. And I found the name of someone named you know, Leonard Gettler. And I went on to newspapers.com and began you know, looking for references to Leonard Gettler. And I was able to find a reference to, um, to his daughters. I was able to get in touch with one of his daughters, Judy, who was able to tell me about her recollections of having a dad who had a glitter factory. And she was able to talk about one of his business partners. I was able to track down the daughter of this business partner and get her perspective on things. So it really it, it forced me to be creative, not only in, in the scope of the story that I tell, but also how do I bring in that personal element? Where else can I look? And really, it was it was a lot of fun to to to, to solve these problems. Writing a book, especially writing a nonfiction book, it's a lot about problem solving. And I love that aspect of the work. I, as I'm hearing you uh, talk about these interviews and other places that you've kind of explored and done your research, I, and, and having read the book uh, already three or four times, I'm hearing the places where the primary sources really ended up impacting the story. Uh, do you want to speak to that, like how those how those pieces of knowledge make their way into that complete tale that you end up telling us as readers? Well, one example is you no. Know, there was a, a spread where I talked about cultural uses of glitter. One of which is is Mardi Gras, and it just so happened that you know a, a librarian whose school I'd been to in New Orleans and who knew I was working on a book about glitter, if I'm recalling correctly, she reached out to me and said, hey, just so you know, there's this, this uh, Mardi Gras crew here in New Orleans. It's an all-women's crew called the Crew of Muses. And our thing is we cover you know, high-heeled shoes and glitter and toss them off our parade floats. And so I ended up getting a uh, – she made for me – she and another school librarian who is crew-adjacent made for me a glitter-covered shoe – with, and their, their thing is making children's literature 
themed glitter related shoes. So there's a, uh, I think a, an Adam Goodwood's tail dark and grim shoe that I've seen a photo of, but they made one with you know, shark and train and fire truck and dragon and uh, you know, the, the, the super soaker. So I, I have this artifact in my possession. It's still like enclosed in the plastic bag that was in my receipt because I do not want literally glitter everywhere, but you know, having, having that, that tangible artifact and knowing that, that one of these librarians had written for a couple of like a local publication. And also I think for, I think it was for an, either an ALA or an AASL publication written about these, uh, these children's literature themed shoes. I had those resources to go into, which led me even further into finding out about another Mardi Gras crew that throws glitter covered coconuts and how the glitter, at this point, I'm getting into details that did not make it in the book, how once upon a time, the glitter covered coconuts were not hollowed out. And then for insurance purposes, they had to start hollowing out the glitter covered coconuts. None of this sounds safe, Chris, when you're talking about coconuts and and heeled shoes being chucked off of Mardi Gras roads, this feels I dangerous. I think but... more is being gently tossed. Of course, by this time, by okay. the time I was doing this part of the research, we were you know, well into the pandemic. And so these things really weren't, I, I don't, I don't recall exactly how the, the extent to which Mardi Gras was, was postponed or, or delayed or canceled, but I did not go to Mardi Gras myself and witness for myself the velocity with which these objects come down from the, from the parade floats. Um, I did eat some glitter there is such a thing as edible glitter, which I talk about the book. So just because you eat glitter does not make that edible glitter. Uh, the FDA has a definition of what edible glitter is. And so I, I had some pancake syrup containing glitter and I had uh, some cupcakes containing edible glitter. So that was that was probably the most fun primary source I, I came into contact with. You get, uh, again, hitting into that science, like this idea of what makes it edible versus just something you technically you can eat yes, yes yeah that's uh i thought that that was a fun interesting ex i don't know if that was experimented on by you or if that was through that process or if you were just reading the you know the the scientific knowledge around that but well i was asking a lot of questions of that people had never been asked before you know, I don't know that anyone, there was a, a fishing lure museum that I got in touch with to ask what they knew about the historical use of, of glitter in fishing lures. And not surprisingly, that was a detail about the fishing lure business, about fishing lure history that, that you know, I was not able to find an expert on. Uh, I got in touch with a uh, an etymologist at the University of Texas to try to help me understand. So before glitter was called glitter, it was known as flitter. So replace the G with an F and you've got the term it was known as before. And so I wanted to know whether glitter and flitter were, you know, how, how is it that we have these two rhyming words for the same thing? Is that just a coincidence or, or did we, was, did we just rename something? And I don't know that I could not find any, article out there anywhere where someone had said, oh, hey, it used to be called flitter. Now it's glitter. And here's why that is. So I have now kind of created the explanation for that. But it involved asking people who had never considered that question before. had never been asked that question before. 
it it goes very deep. I, and I know you mentioned earlier the the fact that there was some primary sources that you had hoped to find and didn't. And of course, it brought you down this path. I'm wondering, was there a, was there another primary source that surprised you or was unexpected or maybe changed your thinking about or about glitter or maybe it's impact in society or scientifically something that surprised you what else was out there for you for, for this book i i, I do I, the, the bibliography is 155 items long not counting the cupcakes and the and the syrup i'm trying to be i mean i feel like this was more than any book i've ever made this was a a the composite result of lots of little inquiries it's lots of things that i that i stitched together um there was not an oral history that unlocked for me there there was not a you know a, a piece of of no, it was not a commercial product containing glitter that where I could say, aha, here was the moment that that, you know, glitter really entered the mainstream. One really fascinating aspect of the glitter story, though, and something I had not, you know, I didn't have no idea about before I, I began working on this book. I wanted to understand kind of how glitter became this big, you know, a big part of our culture. You know, it was not always a big part of our culture. Now, you know, look up the phrase, go on, go on to social media and look up the phrase glitter everywhere. You're going to see a whole lot of references that are not references to my book. I wish they all were references to my book, but, and, and to me in a way they are, but you know, glitter is a big part of our, of our culture. When did that happen? And, you know, I thought, well, what about, what about the glam rock movement? How did it get into that? Well, before the glam rock movement, there was a a, a troop of, of of hippie drag performers. You know, multi generational, multi gender hippie drag performers based out of San Francisco in the late nineteen sixties, uh, and who had some influence on on the glam rock musicians. Well, how did that happen? Well, there was a uh, in, in New York City in the early 1960s, there were these you know, kind of far out theatrical and, and, and film uh, producers who you know, used glitter in their productions. And in that same art scene, there was a family called the Harris family. And they had, they had uh, I think, three or four kids. And one of these kids uh, was a kid named, named George Harris, who I believe it was 1967, left left his family in New York to travel to San Francisco, where he became one of these, one of these drag performers under the name Hibiscus. But along the way, he stopped at, there was a famous protest at the Pentagon in 1967, I believe it was. And there's a famous photograph called Flower Power of a young man putting a, a flower inside the barrel of, of, a, of a soldier's rifle and maybe a National Guardsman's rifle. That young man with kind of the floppy hair and a thick, heavy sweater, that was George Harris. I kind of consider him to be the Johnny Appleseed of, of glitter. And there may, there may be more to that story than, than, than I, I'm aware of. But from what I've pieced together, I haven't not seen that piece together elsewhere. He, you know, but so that, that kind of shows you the moment. He was on his way from, 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 from New York to sewing 
glitter out on the West Coast when he stopped and was was part of this historical moment that really had nothing to do. It was, a, it was an anti-Vietnam protest at the Pentagon, but was captured in a very famous photograph. And like, what a weird tangent for my research about glitter to take me in. But it's one of the things I love so much about making these books. I've, I'm, I fell in love with this. I actually saw it for the first time uh, just recently at uh, the ALA annual convention. It was on display in the Charles Bridge booth. It hadn't come out yet. It was days away from coming right. out. And Chris, I, I read it and right there in the booth and then just got on my phone and ordered it because I was like, yes, I need to dig deeply into this. Plus, I know my students are going to love it. So uh, there is and, and one. Even, even if students oh, yeah. hate glitter, even if students hate glitter, this book is still for them. It is. Because the theme of this book is not yay glitter, the more the better. Yes, you can walk away from this book with a solid argument to not have glitter anywhere, right? Because of the ecological uh, impact of it. I mean, you explore that, but you also explore then what uh, companies are doing to rectify that as well. Right. So you, we get to see kind of this, it's very nuanced, uh, and at the same time, very young reader friendly, which is, a an interesting and, and really challenging, I would imagine, uh, balance to strike. Well, and, and we recognize the fact that humans like sparkly, shiny things. That's not limited to kids. We like sparkly, shiny things. And that being the case, we're not going to stop using glitter, we, but we can use it differently. We can make it out of different things. We can use it more sparingly. We can be more thoughtful about how and when and under what circumstances we use it. But no, we're not. We're, the, the answer is not to, to ignore that aspect of our human nature that draws us to, to shiny things. I have I have one final question. I don't think this really has to do with primary sources, but I was just curious as I read this. You okay. get into a piece towards towards the beginning of the book talking about iridescence and iridescent surfaces and and scientifically what's actually happening there uh, with light and and light reflect uh, reflection. Um, and at the end of that, you you say uh, this isn't magic or fairy dust or unicorn dandruff. It's science. And so my question to you, Chris, is do you think you may have coined the term unicorn dandruff? I'm not even sure I wrote that that part of that sentence. So I haven't I've not Googled the phrase unicorn dandruff. So this book may do it. So a book is a is a result of a collaboration of, of many people. And I could swear that it was my my editor who came up with with that particular phrasing. And when I said that to her, she and I were recording something last week, she said, no, I'm pretty sure that was you. So we could go back into the into the archives and look at the at the, the evolution of, of that text. But somewhere between me and my editor, we did end up with with the phrase unicorn dandruff. Well, regardless of who came up with it, I'm glad it's there. And I'm glad that this book is here and going to end up in a whole lot of libraries and a whole lot of young readers' hands um, this fall, if it hasn't ended up there already. Uh, it is glitter everywhere, where it came from, where it's found, and where it's going. Chris Barton, so thank you so much for joining me again on the Primary Source Podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. Now I'll have to go make another book so I can come back again. <laughs>